Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Margot Nykirk, one of your hosts. And I'm Evan Gottesman. Today we're going to be discussing the spread of the coronavirus in the Gaza Strip, where the official count, as of earlier today, is up to nine cases. While Gaza initially had no cases reported while the count climbed in Israel, a perfect storm of factors mean Gaza could be especially hard hit by the pandemic. And with us today to discuss this topic is Dr. Shira Efron. Dr. Efron is a policy advisor at Israel Policy Forum and in parallel is also a visiting fellow at the Institute for National Security Studies in Tel Aviv. At the RAND Corporation, she co-authored the study, The Public Health Impacts of the Gaza Water Crisis. Thank you for joining us, Shira. Thank you for having me. So I want to get right to it. Gaza announced this week that they have their first cases of coronavirus. As Evan mentioned, the count is now at nine. What conditions in Gaza could potentially make a coronavirus outbreak worse there? And why were there initially no cases reported while the coronavirus was spreading in Israel? It was only the news was announced today that there are seven additional cases confirmed. But it started with reports of two Gaza residents who came back from Pakistan and at the border were detected as carrying the virus. Uh, and right away were put in a field hospital along the Rafah border with Egypt, now designated as a quarantine facility. And the seven additional cases are security of officials that interacted with those two others. So some people say, well, it's actually pretty good. We are containing the situation. We have this under control because those two and now the nine have not interacted with the broader population. But it's hard for me to believe that despite Gaza being a closed off place from the world that is not globalized in the sense like the rest of the world, like Israel, still you know, people come in and out, goods go in and out, trucks go in and out. And uh, until very recently, also, you had Gaza uh, workers working in Israel. The problem that we're seeing is that this is a global problem. There are no sufficient test kits in Gaza. And according to the Israeli press, at least only 144 tests were conducted so far. So it's highly unlikely that there are really nine cases. You know, now to your the first part of your question, clearly, I mean, the most most technologically well-off developed countries in the world, I mean, look at New York, where IPF is headquartered, are struggling to contain the coronavirus outbreak and offer proper mitigation when containment is no longer possible. You know, this pandemic presents challenges at the state level. And so no question does the sub-state entity, as the Palestinian territories and Gaza in particular, they can't handle such a challenge. Gaza specifically is one of the most densely populated places on Earth, with large families living together. Uh, many under very crowded refugee camps, which make an ideal environment for any epidemic outbreak. Now, it's not that population density is a precondition for an outbreak. And look at Singapore. Singapore is uh, super dense, but was able to handle the situation and contain actually the outbreak. But Gaza has no basic infrastructure to enable, uh, you know, abiding by the most basic guidelines of social distancing. How can you do that? I think, secondly, Gaza lacks water or drink for cooking, for hygiene, for sanitation, for the hospitals. In addition, and this is again, this is a global problem, Gaza also has insufficient testing kits, protective equipment, ventilators. But Gaza, in addition to those standard products that are now everyone's looking for, it has an acute shortage of hospital beds, standard medical supplies. There's a shortage of medical staff, including physicians, nurses, vehicles, ambulances. And many of these medical professionals are really poorly trained, partially because they were not able to leave Gaza Strip for the last 13 years because of the closure policy. So I think this makes Gaza 
really ripe for such an outbreak. And I think there's even more to that. We're now in 2020, early 2020, and you may recall that in 2012, the UN published a report that the title was with a question mark, Gaza in 2020, a livable place. And the report said that if extreme measures are not taken, Gaza by 2020 would become an unlivable place. And, you know, to that question that the report posed, if Gaza is a livable place, I think most people would say it's not because 80% of the population lives on aid from the international community. So we have, in addition to the public health sector and the medical sector that are both tittering on the brink, you also have a place that is poor. You have plenty of sick people and and um, with a non-functioning public health sector and all these problems. We know poverty is associated with adverse um, health outcomes. So this is in addition to what we're seeing on the medical front and the public health front. You mentioned the water crisis in Gaza, which was the subject of the study that you led at the RAND Corporation. How do the challenges that Gaza faces with lack of clean water and proper sanitation square with the need in all times, but especially in this current pandemic, to, for example, frequently and thoroughly wash your hands? What we take for granted in the developed world, you just can't do in Gaza. And you just gave this example. I mean, Gaza does not have enough water. It's not just that the water is not clean, which we know it's not, It's not, but it doesn't have enough water, not only for the drinking and cooking, but also for hygiene and sanitation. And I'll give you an example. We looked in the context of schools, but this is reflective of the rest of the population as well. On average, there is one hand-washing facility for every 130 students in Gaza. The guidelines are having one hand-washing facility which is basically like a sink, right? Or faucet for every 30 students to cope with those water shortages. Even the hospitals, which are supposed to be the most clean places, even the hospitals reduced their level of sanitation. So under these circumstances, I just I find it impossible to follow the basic recommendation to repeatedly and thoroughly wash your hands. I want to move on to how the coronavirus in the Gaza Strip impacts the terror organizations present there, such as the Strip's Hamas government and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Are these groups mostly looking inwards as the outbreak reaches the Strip, or is there a potential also for an escalation with a conflict with Israel? You know, I've had a few conversations with people in Gaza over the last week or uh, even 10 days. And it's really interesting. There's a complete shift in focus from the political issues and what the Palestinians call resistance to Israel to an inward focus where people and that makes a lot of sense, right? Just want to protect themselves and their loved ones. Now, what I think is interesting at the broader level, like at the top-down level, that it's very clear both to Hamas and all other factions, and, and of course to the PA, a Palestinian Authority, who cooperates with Israel very nicely, but they all understand that without Israel's help, not just help by giving in-kind disinfectants and test kits, but facilitating all the movement and access into Israel of what is needed, without Israel's help, they can't do this. Hamas knows that they're not up for it. They're not up for, you know, running a desalination facility. They're definitely not up to this challenge that many state actors are not up for. It's very interesting that now all the things that Israel has sort of learned to live with, weekly protests along the border, the rocket fire, incendiary balloons and kites, they just seem in Gaza as crazy, crazy ideas. It seems that Hamas understands that. That's the biggest challenge that it had ever encountered and has been working with the professional teams in the Gaza Strip, but also with the different factions to stress the urgency of the situation, make sure that we don't deteriorate into violence. Now, I mean, 
we can, we can never say never, but it seems to me that it's very unlikely that any group now, any faction would try to take advantage of the situation and act violently just because, you know, the, the, the challenge is so big that it shifted all actors, including Israel, from a conflict mode into a crisis mode. And under crisis, you cooperate. It's also really interesting because you see the Palestinian public that a few months ago, and especially after the Trump administration released their peace plan, were very opposed to cooperation with Israel, even to negotiations. A poll that came out two days ago showed that 70% of the Palestinian public thinks their leadership should cooperate with Israel on how to contain the coronavirus. So uh, I think the leadership in Gaza knows that the public is definitely not behind any violence at the moment. So if the focus is not on conflict, is there any potential for an easing of Israeli or Palestinian Authority restrictions on Gaza? What kind of impact would that have and what are the risks involved here? I mean, definitely, we've seen an ease on both sides, both on the side of Israel and on the side of the PA, in terms of the PA's sanctions on Hamas and working with the international community to facilitate entrance of needed material into Gaza. And Israel, who has also been working with the international community and also is contributing in kind, testing kits and disinfectants. I must stress if there is one silver lining to this crisis is how well everyone is working together. And that includes Israel, the Palestinian Authority, the PA, Hamas, and the international community. Each side is really doing their best. For Israel here, I think it's very clear that there is an interest that is beyond just taking care of the people of Gaza, but Israel wants to prevent a total collapse of Gaza that would, you know, would leave Gaza for Israel to handle. Also, the international community for sure would blame Israel for the responsibility of Gaza. Gaza's collapse. But also there's this nightmare scenario that Israel really fears and has no good response to that if what do, you, what do you do if you have thousands of Gazans marching toward the border with Israel and not, you know, the violent protests just saying like, help us, we just need help, take care of us in your hospitals. I mean, what, what, how can even Israel respond to that? So that's a real issue. The PA, even though it's really worried about the West Bank, where we have more cases, still understands that it has to ease the sanctions toward Gaza, and they're also releasing some of the money, which is good. And of course, the international community, especially the World Health Organization, but also the UN, they are working around the clock to contain the virus spread both in the West Bank and in Gaza. Um, however, they're missing a lot. They're, they're, they still don't have enough money to do that, but they're doing the best with what they can. So I want to ask about how Egypt fits into all of this. As we know, Egypt has a border with Gaza and it plays an important role. Egypt too is experiencing increasing cases of COVID-19. What can we expect from Egypt in this situation? Egypt has been, and especially in recent years, such an essential party in terms of maintaining the quiet, creating some understandings between Israel and Gaza and opening uh, its border with Gaza. However, I think that in, during this crisis, because Egypt, as you said, is struggling itself and as a state does not have the capacity to handle this challenge, I don't think we can expect much from Egypt, understandably, and this is why it falls onto Israel's lap and the international community. Egypt will remain involved, and if, if an actor would ask Egypt for specific help that doesn't require resources, they would, of course, uh, contribute what they can, but it's unrealistic under these circumstances to ask them to face their attention to Gaza. To bring this all together, we discussed the increased cooperation between officials in the Gaza Strip and Israel, 
with the Palestinian Authority, just discussed the role of Egypt. Is there room for that kind of increased cooperation, which is the product of this coronavirus crisis, to outlast the current moment in time and maybe create a better foundation for the future? Or is it just that, something that is stuck in this moment in time related to the pandemic and not something with any kind of long-term political potential? Look, this is a really good question. I think that often we find that crisis, they bring conflicted parties together only during the crisis, but then the sides go back to conflict mode. So the question is really how to preserve, once the crisis is over, and hopefully it ends relatively at a minimal cost, how can you sustain and improve the cooperation that we're seeing now and turn it into a long-term process? It does illustrate what we're seeing, although Israel and the Palestinian territories, Gaza and the West Bank, are definitely like separate political, ethnical entities. You know, they consist of one geographical unit and the cliche that the disease has no borders couldn't be truer, right? It's really important that Israelis and Palestinians, and by the way, also Egyptians and Jordanians, but it's really important that Israelis and Palestinians continue to cooperate at least on environmental and health issues, even in times of the political deadlock. And that does not mean anything. And, you know, I think IPF, of course, we're staunch supporters and still believers in a two-state solution, a just two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But under all two-state solution formulas, cooperation on environmental issues and health issues has always been the card. So this is something to build on. For starters, and this is something we also recommended in the RAN report, that Israelis and Palestinians, and as I said, the other neighbors that have peace with Israel, so Egypt and Jordan, should create a regional pandemic task force to prevent a future disease outbreak and implement containment. It's very clear that once Israel and maybe the Palestinians, they plan for such an outbreak in the future, no one has planned for this now, but surely they will be planning afterwards that they factor each other's behavior and needs into these plans. It's also important, you know, we can't stress this enough, the donors and practitioners, you have the ONSCO, the UN Special Envoy to the Peace Process, keep calling for help to prioritize investment in upgrading the public health services in Gaza and invest in public health risk uh, mitigation initiatives. And the current situation, I think, stresses that this is something that really needs to happen. And we're talking about some of the investments are not, you know, they're not a desalination plant that would take probably a minimum 10 years to build. But having water fountains, sinks and faucets, that's not too difficult, not too costly to do. You know, to your question, if we can translate it into this political process, you know, Israel and Hamas, with the help of the international community and Egypt, of course, have been negotiating this understanding and each side has a different interpretation of what the understandings actually mean. But Perhaps it's possible to translate what we have now, a current cessation in violence, into some long-term ceasefire. Formalize those understandings. Involve the Palestinian Authority in there, in a way that doesn't undermine the PA, but the PA becomes a part of this process. And maybe... You know, that could, that could make it much easier to invest in large-scale infrastructure projects in Gaza 
which would be important. But also maybe this close cooperation could also be developed into some sort of a meaningful re relaunch of the peace process. And maybe one day, this might be wishful thinking, but the return of the PA to Gaza, which Israel and the international community wants. Now, this, of course, depends not just on this crisis, depends on leaderships on both sides. It also depends on the U.S. leadership. This is not a priority for anyone. But maybe after the crisis, if this is managed rightly and, and wisely, you can leverage this into some sort of emerging out of the deadlock. I think this is a good way to end. Thank you, Shira, for showing us the seriousness of the situation. And thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me and uh, stay safe and healthy. And same to you, Shira. We will put a link to the study that Shira led, The Public Health Impacts of Gaza's Water Crisis, in the description of this podcast. I also want to encourage all of our listeners to check out the new Israel Policy Hub, which we launched yesterday. You can find that at ipf.li forward slash hub. This is a collection of resources that we've put together that are curated specially for remote learning. That includes our new Tuesday video briefing series. Our next program will be called Pandemic. Israel-Arab State Relations in a Global Crisis, and that's going to feature Tamara Kaufman-Wittes, Senior Fellow at the Brookings Center for Middle East Policy. That's going to be on Tuesday, March 31st at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. You can also find other policy resources on the Israel Policy Hub, including uh, Shira and I recently co-authored another study in search of a viable option on different outcomes that have been put forward for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that can also be found there, along with other initiatives that Israel Policy Forum has undertaken over the years. Be well, and we will see you all on the next episode.